Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Well, it, the day's coming. We're, we're moving to Spotify. We're doing it. We can't wait to do it. We are moving to Spotify. Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2020, exclusively. We'll be on there with new releases and the entire back catalog of this show all happening on Spotify. Now, if you haven't tried Spotify or if it's been a while since you've given them a look, uh, it's really free. It's really easy. Uh, there's no it's credit incredibly card. incredibly free. No, honestly, you'll be able to listen to us and download episodes without entering your credit card information. It's, honest to God, zero dollars. All you got to do is search for our show on Spotify and start listening right now for free. You can download all episodes for offline listening with a free account, like we said. So check us out. Follow Wizard and the Bruiser on Spotify to get new episodes as soon as they come out. Hello, everybody. It is your perfect girl, but she comes with seven evil ex-boyfriends, Wizard Holden McNeely. It's me, Ramona. (laughs) Hi, Scott. Ooh, and it's me, your virginal (laughs) Chinese teenage girlfriend who's obsessed with you, and I'm kind of a weird commentary on how scenesters are born, but also I'm 17, but no one, everyone's like, just kind of okay with it, but like, I guess it's okay. It's very weird. It's very, very weird. Knives Chow Bruiser Jake. (laughs) Hi, Scott. Which one do you choose? Did you cheat on me, Scott? Did you cheat on me, Scott? (laughs) I hate you. I love you. (laughs) That's right. Today we're talking about Scott Pilgrim and what an episode. Of course. Of course we have to do this episode. I, you suggested it to me when we were mulling over what we should do. It is one of my favorite time parts of the week is literally us just figuring out what we're going to do next. It's always so exciting. Like, what journey am I going to crack out on this week? And, uh, and this was a perfect one because I, of course, had seen the film. Uh, I had, um, but I had not actually seen the, uh, read the book. And so this is a perfect excuse. And I went online and not to like, hawk everything like I do uh, on this show and by the way how many ring fit adventure units have we sold since we started talking about how great it is I want to say at least mania. I want to say at least 10 people bought it because we talked about it so Nintendo send your checks to our way but uh, yeah it's online um, or on whatever Amazon or whatever for 40 bucks to get all six 
volumes of it, which I think is a real steal for how much content you get and how fun this content is. It is not the color re-releases, though. And I immediately, when I saw that, I ordered this and then saw that there were these beautiful color reissues. And I was like, damn. Uh, those, I think, are a little more expensive, though. But still, they look really good. And They I've- look real good. I was shocked when I saw them. I'd, I've been reading through those. And it's... They did a good job. It's it's they not also, a cheap cash out. They 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 uh, Scott Pilgrim eyes or Brian Lee O'Malley eyes the color work too. Mm. Like like the color they play with it in in terms of the format. They have like when I think when someone's heart gets broken, the color literally drains from them off the panel. That sort of thing, which I think is really neat that they would give it that attention to detail and that loving care to not just give it the color, but actually like make jokes with the color, make statements with the color. So anyways, uh, and that is what this is. Let's talk about what Scott Pilgrim is. Scott Pilgrim is my early twenties. If I (laughs) grew up in Canada, um, it is before, you know, ready player one Mm. and all of these sorts of nostalgia bomb works that we've gotten in the many years since Scott Pilgrim was one of the very first works I feel like that was throwing all of these video game references uh fantasy fiction references at your face and what I th- think is important, like a real life story yeah what I think is super important what really set Scott Pilgrim apart as a property is um this was before the grand um kind of loot creatification of nerd culture this is before uh you know every single marvel movie was a was a constantly yes. measured thing before there were galaga before robert downey jr made galaga references in billion dollar movies this was the first piece of media uh the comic and even the movie that acknowledged the lived experience of people in their 20s that grew up with like anime comic books video games uh you know a world where you know uh, a world where the new pornographers and street fighter 2 equally took emotional space in their heart. Perfect example, Jake, that we for the first time we were seeing kids be both nerdy and cool at the same time Mm -hmm. before being nerdy was cool. So you were in a cool hip band, but you also get every reference to Final Fantasy that was being made. You know, like that sort of thing was really fresh and new when Brian O'Malley put it out there and has now become in a lot of ways dated. I mean, I think in a lot of ways you can watch the film and roll your eyes at plenty of stuff in it I think that were pretty novel even at the time of the film's release which obviously the film came out the film kind of pulled a Game of Thrones a little bit like they they, oh absolutely they were you know O'Malley's working on his written work but the film is already in the works from even before the first volume got out there into the public uh, the uh, first volume was given to the director of Scott Pilgrim versus the world to to read. So, I mean, this thing was we'll in development. We'll get into how it kind of like, uh, how the endings and, and kind of yes. that, that weird struggle at the end as the movie was being made as well kind of came into being. But right. I still want to praise this thing for being the forebear, for being the bold and like kind of in a world where this didn't exist. You know, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley uh, was working uh, for Oni Press, which was also a relatively new publisher, yep. and out of the shadow of places like Slave Labor Graphics and Dark Horse Comics, where you know the black and white moody indie comic was about you know your kind of uh, slacker, kind of grungy aesthetic. Uh, he didn't publish his as individual comic issues. He didn't publish his thing as a bespoke graphic novel. Right. Scott Pilgrim is in the exact size and format of a manga digest. Yes. He, 
is like turning a very purposely so yeah a very canadian very like slackery story and imprinting it over uh you know a ronma one half trade paperback which is you know it it was the perfect vehicle to actually sit next to the hundreds of volumes of naruto and bleach on the barnes and noble shelf it was the right story in the right format for a generation that has yeah, that it was it hit at the right time at the right place with the right mix. It's yeah. kind of I'm kind of in awe of it because it was made from actual passion, an actual um an yeah, actual Yeah, no cynicism exp- here. And and really What he did was an was novel. real experimentation yes. that worked instead of just being like you know, making a Mario reference in a Big Bang Theory episode. Yeah, and all of the references in the book. I was actually surprised to see. I thought it was going to be a lot more reference heavy and a lot more like, see, video games, you love those, right? <laughs> then it really ends up being. It's a lot more about the relationships, that these books. It's a lot more human than I actually thought it was going to be. And boy, does it nail being in your early 20s, especially when we were in our early 20s, in terms of just the music people were listening <laughs> to, the lifestyles and everything but i think i think it is timeless outside of those specific references oh i got this is a person in their 20s trying to figure it out fucking up constantly in relationships Mm. you know starting to date one girl when you haven't broken it off with the other one yet because you're a fucking jerk idiot (laughs) you know just all sorts of things like that being broke as shit being in a weird living situation because you have no money everyone's broke as shit but everyone also has a suburban home with normal ass parents that yes. they can at any point go yes. back to. Totally that. Uh, yeah, it's like you're in Toronto trying to figure mm-hmm. it out, but there's totally the option to just give up and go back home uh, and start all over again, which a lot of people do. There's that shitty band you're in and you know you're terrible and you're like <laughs> apologizing to people before you're even playing. All of that kind of stuff. And also seeing other people, seeing that girl you dated in college be in a cool band and like get really successful. All of that stuff. Um, man, they just, they totally nail that lifestyle. And also one of the other things O'Malley does, which he says he didn't really start thinking about until maybe the third or fourth volume, maybe the second volume, was uh, he really gave an eye to fashion, especially fashion at the time. That was novel in comic books, like taking actual like kids in their 20s and what they really dressed like and what all of that stuff meant uh, and how important that was to, to everything as well. Just so much of it culminates in this perfect I'm in I'm 23 and trying to figure it out aesthetic that just through and through it's like bugging me out a little bit. No, I had hard nostalgia feelings, especially because we're in our 30s and like late 30s having that (laughs) mid. I am solidly late boy. Whatever old man, the future is with mid 30s. (laughs) Um, Realizing that I'm yeah feeling these nostalgia vibes for a moment in time that like. When Scott Pilgrim first came out, I was, like, in college, like, kind of on the verge of that. And that was, like, cool. And it was adult. And, like, I was like, ooh, I can't wait to be cool like this. And by the time the books ended and by the time the movie came out, I was almost getting past it a little. I was still a piece of shit comedian. So was O'Malley. O'Malley talks about how he was like, by the time I finished, I was looking back on this time of my life, not in this time of my life, which is where he was when the book started. And I think that is important. And and there is such an arc to all of the characters in these books, too, that is so the arc of everyone who gets to their 20s. I was even thinking this to myself, you know, and your, your 20s are probably the most exciting and the most fun quote unquote, 
but the most difficult and the dumbest and like the most frustrating and you had to have some shitty job you hated, yada, 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 right? The 30s, a lot more smooth, a lot, maybe a lot less exciting per se, but are the most enjoyable years, I feel like, up to that point. You know what I mean? Like, I Unless love you have kids, my 30s. then it's a nightmare. <laughs> then it's a nightmare. I love my 30s so much more, I think, than my 20s, but I look back on my 20s and they were the most memorable years, probably, of my entire life. So many things happen, so, but so many fuck-ups and really just trying to figure out what it's like to be a decent person in a relationship to be a good friend and to be self-sustainable and to not have to lean on your parents in that way because it fucking gets embarrassing really fast and I think that you see that so so much in all of this work but then on top of it that's the thing that's a that's a constant theme in these books by the way that every time someone fucks up or every some every time someone hits their lowest point it's not that they die it's not that they're like go bankrupt it's not like anything real happens to them even like Ramona, who has like a big breakdown, she just ends up going back to hang out with her dad. Like yeah. it's still like the the death of, of someone in their twenties isn't uh, isn't you know true death. It's just losing your independence. Right, and then you also have on top of that really solid comedy. You know this this the vegan superpower boyfriend crashing and the boys, crashing the boys. All of that stuff is so great. So much experiment experimentation with the form, giving you an actual song to play along with Sex Bob Om mm. in their rehearsal. You know, giving you the the tabs or whatever the chords so you can play along with them and sing along with them. Him, all of that cool stuff, all the fourth wall breaking, the the you know, uh, you know, just a dr- the com like the comic commentary. We're like, oh no, yes. that happened last. Yeah, volume. that happened the last book, and like even just calling it the book, or like, can this book be over with already <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, you know, all all of those great things, and and the really fun combat, the really fun fighting that happens in in this, and a lot of times it's in the background. You know, that's very much so in volume five, which is a lot more Ramona's volume. But uh, yeah, by that by that volume, he's uh, you've got Scott Pilgrim fighting a giant robot monster, <laughs> but you're not even really paying attention to that. That's sort of happening uh, in the in the background while Ramona's upstairs getting drunk on tequila and dealing with who who she is, coming to terms with who she is, with who Scott is. Uh, so where did you find out about this? So I wanted to give shout outs to my boy, Tim Dean, because I remember in college, we were hanging out in the apartment. He was just like, dude, just found out about this. You know, there's this great comic series called Scott Pilgrim. It's like this guy who has to fight these his uh, the seven evil ex-boyfriends of this girl he's starting to date. And it's all full of these great references and things with video games and all this sort of stuff. I was like, that sounds amazing. He's like, yeah, and they are working on a movie and I'm really excited about it. And so I had never still, uh, like I said, I spent this past week reading all of the books. I had only seen the movie when it came out, but I did really thoroughly enjoy it. I felt like it was definitely uneven. It had a couple moments that were a little cringy to me that didn't really, I didn't really uh, vibe with me. But on the whole, I really enjoyed it and saw it multiple times. It was definitely the kind of movie you could just throw on and get a nostalgia bomb smacked across your face, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, so it was really more off the movies for the longest time for me, but also just seeing it as this artifact of what was to come, man, because, God, people took this format and this style. I just love, like, the having to fight the seven evil ex-boyfriends concept feels like a concept I would have come up with. I'm jealous that I didn't come up with. It's so smart and it's so great. And of course, even the director director of Shaun of the Dead and, uh, you know, he's, of course, uh, and Spaced, which we'll talk about. But um, uh, we're talking about Edgar Wright. 
Edgar Wright even, um, you know, he is always constantly making references and doing things like that and playing with form as well. So that felt like a real match made in heaven, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Uh, I discovered this at the time. I was deep in the indie comic scene. I wanted, I was like drawing cartoons from my school paper. All of them were terrible. I don't know if you knew this. George W. Bush, kind of a dumb dumb. I wasn't afraid to say it, you know? In the pages of the GW Hatchet, every week I was like, I don't know if you understand, George W. Bush is a dumb dumb. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had dreams of being a graphic novelist. I, like, comics were, especially indie comics, were my lifeblood at this time. Um, I actually picked up Lost at Sea, Brian Lee O'Malley's first work, and I kind of... Oh, wow. Uh, it's, you know, it, it was a lot more toned down. It didn't have as much of uh, the flair that Scott Pilgrim brought to it, but I remember reading that and loving it. And then when this came out, I was blown away, and um, I was happy to see that, you know, it kind of became this indie darling. It, in, it ended up, like, kind of... I don't think it, like, as much influenced uh, a lot of people as it did, like, give the okay to a lot of young artists to like use your kind of weird batshit potpourri of uh, influences in your work that, you know, you can like take the hours of Sailor Moon that you've watched and the mopey WB dramas you watched and like all the JRPGs you watch and just kind of create something new with it. And so, yeah, as each and every uh, volume came out, I would buy it day of and I was, I loved it. I genuinely loved it. Um, and then, obviously, the movie came out, and I was floored. This was everything I had wanted in a movie. This was so good, and I was heartbroken when it just kind of, like, was considered a flop, and people were just yeah. kind of like... Um, and even now, it's still a weird, contentious thing. I think the art form of confessional-style anime-influenced comics and media has gotten so far ahead of where Scott Pilgrim started that a lot of people... Are kind of like, eh, Scott's a bad character. Oh, like these people are douchebag. Like, you know. I love that they're so flawed and shitty. You oh, know no. what I mean? Part of my favorite thing about this the series is how well developed the social network is. Yeah. You feel like you're actually part of a clique of friends. Yeah, and, and those friends, especially in your early to mid twenties, where there's this one chick who always hangs out and you think she's a bitch. <laughs> but you just see her every night because she's just in the friend group. You know? And that's just what it is. And 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 you have to put up with that. And that that circle always gets pared down and smaller and smaller and you get you cut those people out of your life as you go on but when you're 23 that's normal it's genuinely um and this, this is what made me the most upset going over this has been a long gush by the way we'll have to start getting into it real soon yeah for sure uh the fucking just the where are we hanging out tonight yeah nobody's staying home and why would you stay home place. our apartments are shitty we got to go find some place to hang out. And it's always the same place. And it's a restaurant that everyone agrees has bad food. <laughs> like, I love that. And and then in volume four, uh, you've got, or maybe it was five, where you've got these girls who move into this, like, uh, apartment they can't even afford, but it's in this cool part of town and it's cool enough so that they're just throwing theme parties every <laughs> single weekend to the point where you're getting sick of going there <laughs> to their dumb theme parties. Like, all of that shit is so real. I, I, I just completely connected with all of it. But you're right. We should get into it. Why don't we get into it? The listeners at home are screaming, why, Jake and Holden, will you not get into it? Because so. we're old men and this... This topic gave us feelings. It makes us happy, sad to look back on it and and talk about it. So, anyways, Brian Lee O'Malley. Let's talk about him. He's he is the brain mind that this all came from. I mean, this guy was literally. It wasn't until the final book 
that he actually got assistance and stuff. I mean, this is all him. He grew up in Canada in a half-Korean, half-French-Canadian household. He attended St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Secondary School in London, Ontario, Canada. O'Malley said, The first zine-like thing I ever made was a Transformers choose-your-own-adventure-slash-activity book. It had inserts with pop-ups and flaps and things like that. It was all made by hand, and there was only one copy, my first book in 1988 when I was nine. I love that even his first book has pop-ups and things, playing with the form, getting outside of just doing a quote-unquote standard comic book. In middle school, he with a best friend, they made a ton of comics together, but just for the two of them. And they started then posting work online in high school. So we're talking... Oh, we're if talking, you thought this guy wasn't a web comics yeah. artist, this guy was a web comics <laughs> artist. Uh, actually, on his uh, Tumblr, he's posted a ton of uh, Q&As and a lot of ephemera. Uh, I just want you to look at this artwork that he did from 2001. Oh, wow. Does that not look like every anime-influenced webcomics guy from 100%. 2001? Yeah, yeah, it's these three kids hanging out. It definitely, and I mean, it looks like a precursor to Scott Pilgrim for, for sure. It's got it like, an like, anime vibe, but it's hipstery. It's And very Tetsuya Nomura kind of yeah. <laughs> Kingdom Heartsy. O'Malley said, I got internet access in late 1996, which makes a lot of sense to me. That was around the time everybody was getting it. So I was 17 and I was in the full swing of my anime fandom. All the early comics I posted online were attempts at anime-like stories. In the later 90s, I started going to anime cons and made some artist friends online. And in real life, I contributed to one or two stapled anthology zines with various friends. Eventually, I kind of fell out of anime and got more into the indie DIY scene and moved to Toronto. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, and by the time he hit high school, he was very much in the indie kind of zone, and he kind of took his nerdy webcomic skills and kind of uh, morphed it into Xeroxed cool, like, rock show posters uh, it was during this period that he found his first Plum Tree record, which obviously is the now defunct all girl Halifax uh, <laughs> grunge band that uh, who had a song called Scott Pilgrim. Called Scott Pilgrim. That and... influenced all this. But he made posters for their shows. He was obsessed with this band. Um, you know, and this is kind of where the beginning of his like indie rock slacker, not like uh, uh, identity becomes. And, and, of course, in that song, the line, I've liked you for a thousand years, is said over and over you again. You know what, Mar that. Mary, just go ahead. Just play. It's because it's such a catchy tune. Sure. That's fantastic stuff. And Who is, is so, this man that would so make the coolest girls that Brian Lee O'Malley has ever heard of be so <laughs> obsessed? Uh, he also, around this time, he starts working for Oni Press, an independent comic book and graphic novel publisher based in Portland, Oregon that we mentioned before, which was founded in 1997 by Bob Shrek and Joe Nosemack with the wish to publish work that was different from the material dominating the industry at the time. So, and that is to say that... This was very much so uh, a time when everything was superheroes. Not just superheroes, but the most muscular, gritty, dark, brooding, mm -hmm. like macho, over-the-top superhero you can imagine. So, it, but it was past the uh, speculation boom, and indie comics were kind of coming into their own. Like, you know, the, the, the hot graphic novel was not unheard of at the time, and I, I believe it was Bob Shrek was actually a former... 
Honcho at Dark Horse Comics uh, doing like media relations and kind of, you know, he kind of saw the world of licensing and movie tie-ins and realized that indie comics or at least non-superhero comics have a future as kind of being birthed to these multimedia properties. Uh-huh. So he kind of spins off Oni Press as his as his kind of baby. And a young Brian Lee O'Malley, uh, you know, submits a uh, portfolio and starts getting gigs doing a lot of slice of life work. Uh, what's Ground Zero, I think, is known. Um, what is that first comic? Uh, I don't know. I just have lost to see his first graphic novel. I know that uh, he illustrated on the comic book series Hopeless Savages Hopeless by Savages, Jim Van Meter. Colin, Ground Zeroes has early Brian Lee O'Malley work, and it's very Scott Pilgrim-y, very young people. It's having a family people headed problems. up by old school punks that's like very dysfunctional, but also maybe more functional than most <laughs> on their faces, perfect families. Yeah, the motto for Oni Press was real mainstream, and that referred to what was popular outside of comics at the time, or working in genres that were outside of superhero comics, such as thrillers, romances, and realistic drama. And putting them in comic book form, which was, again, very novel at the time. This is something that's totally normal to us. It reminds me, actually, a lot of my relationship, though, with anime. Like, anime started out as Dragon Ball Z and even Cowboy Bebop and stuff like that, where it was all very much about big fights and action and macho dudes taking care of business and all that stuff. And now I'm I'm way more interested in slice-of-life anime. I'm more interested in... um, uh, your name, let's say, or the recent anime. I believe it's the guy from Cowboy Bebop is involved that I want to gush about on our uh, weekly roundup episodes for <laughs> Patreon. Carol and Tuesday, which oh, I've been you watching. watched it? I've been watching it. Yeah, I, I got to get on it. board. It's uh, quite a few episodes, so I'm only a, a few in, and I'm instantly in love with it. And it Did is. Did you about... start watching it because of that post on the Facebook group? Yes. Ah. Shout out to our Facebook group, and and so yeah, I started watching, it, and that is again, it's. it's it's like it's a it's kind of got the Yuri on Ice vibe a little bit, but it's two ladies that meet up in the big city on Mars and are decide to strike out as this girl music group, and it's got nothing to do with battling and and you know guys powering up for entire episodes, but that's where it all started at, right? And that's where Oni Press was trying to go into the direction of let's talk about real relationships, real people, let's tell real stories here and play with genre and all that sort of stuff, which is interesting to think about because Scott Pilgrim, at the end of the day, is very superhero infused, mm-hmm. you know, and completely based on Goku. Scott <laughs> is like Scott, like he want he he definitely loved that sort of anime as well growing up and wanted. His own Goku, and that's why Scott is such an idiot in so, a lot of ways. Abs- this is super key. Is um, I've listened to a lot of interviews with Brian Lee O'Malley, and he is a very kind of like dour, sarcastic kind of grum. He is more in common with like Kim Pine than Scott Pilgrim. And Scott Pilgrim uh, initially was going to be this like hyper cool dude because he was working on Hopeless Savages, and uh, according to kind of uh, the back matter and the color editions. He was uh, he was based on this mod kid with cool hair and Scott's general uh, look was kind of influenced by these like cool kids. But the more he kind of tied in the anime stuff, the more this kind of bright eyed kind of dummy took hold. And it Scott became more of just Brian talking about like he's kind of just like doing dumb face with Scott Pilgrim because everyone else around him is a embittered asshole. There's no one else. Uh, who's like as bright and naive and cheerful and just kind of flaky as Scott in right. this universe. Right. Totally. 
So uh, where are we at? We are at um, the he's working with Oni and he's putting out his first original graphic novel, Lost at Sea, in 2003, which is about an 18-year-old girl named Raleigh who believes her soul was stolen by a cat and a road trip she takes across the U.S. with a bunch of kids from her school that she barely knows. O'Malley said, when I was in my early 20s, I definitely felt like a teen girl. I think that's pretty universal to be highly emotional in your early 20s. But at this time, the only way I could express that was through a teenage girl character. He also talks about how this was a much more self-serious work. Is mm-hmm. that the case, Jake, who read it recently? Not recently. I read it years and years oh, and years okay, and years gotcha. and years and years ago. Uh, but yeah, it does It does not have a lot of the same. It does not have any of that same like bright kind of chaos energy that's got Maybe a bit has. of that uh, overdramatic early 20s feel. Well, as, you know, he was it. still trying to be an indie artist. Yeah. He was still like he was still kind of suppressing his former anime-ness which yeah it's got uh, like a blankets vibe to it if you know what i mean um (laughs) at some point in 2001 uh he like went to california lived a lot of the broke scumbag life that he talks about in um scott pilgrim ends up moving to toronto has a breakup meets a new girl uh shares a bed with his roommate who wasn't gay yeah uh yeah all these things starting to come into place And he talks about this time saying, it's just this really complicated time in everyone's life, I think. I was just 23, 24. I was living in Toronto. I have a roommate who was gay. Actually, he says he has a roommate who was gay. Uh, I had a band. I think he had a different, he slept in a bed with the non-gay roommate, roommate. had a gay roommate. I had a band I was playing in. A lot of things kind of came into my life around that time that I, when I was working on Lost at Sea, so it became a very natural step to do a comic about that time in my life. But also, it was because he gives Lost at Sea to his friends, and they are super saddened by it, and it is what it is. So he was like, why don't I make something that would make all my friends laugh and that would just that would just like turn them on. And and that was a lot of his approach for Scott Pilgrim was just to surprise and excite the people around him by mirroring the scene in comic book form. Uh, it was also, uh, he was also saying, I was thinking about how I have trouble remembering if I did something for real or if I just did it in a video game sometimes. <laughs> and he used that as inspiration as well for this in- video game infused anime infused work that just is this uh, magical realism for sure you should know that according to an interview i listened to uh he was a genesis kid of course in the color edition they actually have the original pitch document that uh brian submitted to oni press and it kind of just starts off scott pilgrim is a 23 year old jobless type of kid living in toronto he has a few jerky friends and they're in a band together he lives with two gay roommates, and he's dating this Chinese-Canadian high school girl named Knives Chow, who is totally thrilled to be going out with a 23-year-old indie rock type of guy. She's making this gradual transition from preppy Asian girl to ultra-hip scenester indie rock chick, which leaves Scott pretty cold. And then it goes on to describe the plot. There's a few different places where it kind of fits in, but... um. He talks about how the further books will alternate between fighting, training, band practice, shows, and the ongoing relationship with Ramona Flowers and the building mystery of Gideon. Um, And the continuing traumatic experiences that is Knives Chow. It's a shonen fight comic like Dragon Ball Z or Ranma One Half, a slice of life indie rock romantic comedy story like Blue Monday, all rolled into one. It's a slacker action romantic comedy. I have no idea how many volumes it should be. Uh, the easy answer is seven volumes, one for each evil ex-boyfriend. Uh, but I think it can be done in less depending on the page count. 
Yeah, for sure. It ends up being six volumes, of course. Now, to go back a little bit to the manga insp- insp- inspiration, he had only read Ranma 1 half at this point. Which, which is, was basically the only game in town if yeah. you were a 90s kid. And that is the point I wanted to get to, is how rare and how little you got to actually interact with manga at the time. Now it is so standard. There, You know, you go to a Barnes & Noble, they have a fucking manga section. That was not the case back in the day. And so, yeah, he had only read Ranma 1 half, which is about a teenage boy who had been trained in martial arts since a young age, he becomes cursed to become a girl when splashed with water, which sets him on a journey to remove the curse. Of course, he uses that to his advantage throughout the books as well. Uh, and also at this time, his roommate, who worked at a comic book store, got him a book called Even a Monkey Can Draw Manga by Koji Aihara and Kentaro Takekuma, which is a parody instructional book that breaks down every major genre by demographic and served as an effective how-to book for O'Malley, despite it really really being more of a comedic work but he also it also actually helped him to create what would become Scott Pilgrim which is very interesting it makes a lot of sense because again Scott Pilgrim very comedy infused as well there's a great interview on Comics Alliance where the creators of that book actually get to talk to Brian Lee O'Malley and um, they kind of just talk about how when that book was written in the uh, late 80s it was a time when manga was kind of consolidating into this very corporate structure Uh, You know, Dragon Ball had come out a lot of like uh, the bigger properties and all the big publishers were just looking for like what will be the next merchandising hit. And they were kind of just making fun of how similar everything had gotten when previously the manga industry was a lot of like weird creators off in their apartments doing weird shit. And how is we slowly but surely getting codified into set kind of tropes. Um, There's actually a really great moment where they're talking to uh, O'Malley and they find it fascinating that in this story, Scott Pilgrim has multiple girlfriends and has sex, even though he's clearly the nerd protagonist yes. in a harem uh, manga. Yeah. And uh, it just blows their mind that in a, in Canada, even the shitty nerd protagonist still gets to fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and here's a good quote about essentially the shonen inspiration from O'Malley about Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim is sort of shonen manga inspired, so that's how the traditional shonen character is, kind of stupid and very hard-headed. And I found it was very fun and easy to write a character who was really stupid, which I think works really well for him, for sure. Also, a lot of the humor, he says, is... Uh, is inspired by Monkey Island, the point-and-click adventure game, which he loved when he was around 12 there's years a, old. There's a straight-up uh, you know, reference drop when Ramona tells Knives, like, oh, like, what a coincidence, you fight like a cow or something. Yeah. How appropriate, you fight like a cow. It's very clear. I did not realize the Rama one-half connection until doing this research, and Rama one-half is very, it takes place in a high school, but that same weird disconnect where it's just kind of like high school kind of romance kind of... Uh, uh, do they like me? Don't they like me? Drama intercut with like, like weird, funny jerks. Like it's a co- action comedy series. So like all of a sudden the head of the kendo club will just show up and there's like a cool fight scene when really it's just about two high school kids fighting over the affections of uh, a title character mm-hmm. and like random. It's the way that combat is just brought in seamlessly with no like judgment yeah. <laughs> into a slice of life comic is very Ranma esque. Yeah, for sure. Also, the action elements, now that you meant bring it up, it, very inspired by the video game Street Fighter. O'Malley said, Street Fighter was basically my reason for existing in high school. I loved it in the arcade, and then I bought a Super Nintendo to play Street Fighter at home, and I got a job to do that. That's what set the whole ball rolling. That was my obsession with Street Fighter. So Street Fighter is pretty much the number one, 
and other kinds of fighting games, but pretty much all video games were fighting. Also, I love the just the concept of getting a job just to buy a video game, but that is so how it happens when you're young. He also took a lot from Frank Miller's work, such as Dark Knight Returns. He was really inspired by Frank Miller in terms of action and whatnot. And he played around with form a lot, of course, especially early on. We talked about the band rehearsing with the song lyrics and the chords. O'Malley said, I remember thinking that I just wanted to play with the printed page. Stuff that could just be there and you can go back and look at it as many times as you want. So you can put it in the story without it really interrupting the flow too much. And then people can just have, it's like value added content. It's also funny, or it was funny to me. Then as the story goes on, I started to concentrate more on narrative and I started to veer away from that sort of thing. It's just my development as a writer. And you talked about how you feel like, I, I can't remember if we talked about this before the episode or during about how you felt the fourth volume was the strongest. I think maybe I I feel the fifth volume was the strongest, but only because like all of these relationships are now in the forefront of the story and we're really getting... Oh, you mean they don't take a 10-page break to show you how to make a vegan shepherd's pie? Yeah, <laughs> you don't have any of that stuff and you, it, all that stuff goes away and we are just... Now we are really well acquainted with all these characters so we can really start <laughs> to explore their emotional states in ways that we weren't able to before or that felt superficial before and I love that. And, and of course, that makes so much sense because they are, by the fifth book... Because in the movie, it all feels like it's happening in, in a span of months. In, in the, the movie, it's it's a couple of weeks. Yeah, and in, the, the, in it, the book, it's years. And I feel like by the time you get to the fifth book, their interactions are becoming as complicated as human interactions become for someone when they're hitting more their mid-20s, when they're getting a little bit more evolved as people. Who, and what are we to, doing here? Yeah, like, where's and, this going? And starting to understand. Or like, man, I fucked up. I'm an asshole. And really coming to terms with being a, being a dick. Because you know you were, and when you when you t talk to that girl when you were twenty two, you know, nope, and I have never hurt anyone. <laughs> I am pure and clean, and definitely just not a nightmare of, of horrors. <laughs> but also, of course, we mentioned the fourth wall breaking. This was an inspiration too. O'Malley said one of my favorite authors in high school was John Bars, who who is this famous postmodernist where everything is like the layers of reality are very cloudy. And in comics, Grant Morrison is a big influence. I was just always into that whole ferris bueller thing scott pilgrim is like the ferris bueller-esque character although he is not as competent so that was just a natural fit another thing too another character in the in this series is the city of toronto oh absolutely very very important to the to uh, there are landmarks there are famous so buildings he took a ton of photos and um like uh one of the things that makes the, both the book and the movie so fucking real is how accurate those shitty 20-something apartments are. And those were his actual friend's apartments that he used photo references for. Everything from, like, the old appliances to the peeling wallpaper to just the weird, like, uh, uh, room layouts. You know, it's absolutely as familiar as your childhood home, the mm -hmm. uh, settings for this. Uh, all the weird local businesses, like uh, the Second Cup uh, yeah. coffee shops, uh, what's what's the name of the weird junk store? Honest Owls or something? Some like oh yeah, where they have to do the race, the honest ads or something. Uh, yeah, but oh, it, yeah that was hilarious. Every that city has that weird like uh, just that just that awful discount store that's just so poorly laid out that it hurts your body. Yeah, you're there for 15 minutes and all of a sudden you have like a headache and you don't know why. <laughs> yeah, they really play off of that. That was one of the uh, the rock parts. venues and even um 
The Casa Loma house where the Lucas Lee fight happens is breathtakingly put on the page, including the big stair where the rail kind of happens. Yeah. It's this Toronto is a character. This can't happen anywhere else besides Toronto and not even like downtown business district Toronto, specifically the residential areas of Toronto. And the way they paint the city with different seasons and how each book transition seasonally we start in winter we end in winter we get i think book four is summer we have spring in book three it is so also a part of things so you have and i love that they even talk about how like you in toronto you have you don't even think about how it's it can be the city in the summer and mm. what that is for people you only think of it as completely snow covered and everyone bundled up but that also becomes a big part of it as well Another thing that adds to the magicalness of this universe is just Canada itself. You know, this is Canada in the early 2000s where the indie rock scene is exploding. Yes. Not only that, but Canada has a ton of like airplay requirements and there's tons of money for cultural support and a massive social safety net. So all these kids have health care. All these kids, <laughs> if they lose a job, can get on the dole super easily. All these kids... Our, Jake, we're moving to Canada. You sold me. Uh, <laughs> I need it now. I want to live in an affordable apartment and have health care and go to see cool bands on the Friday night. No, this is an era <laughs> where bands like Tegan and Sarah. Yeah, broken and, social scene. You know, these are the bands that are no making it big. These are Canada people. And you have the freedom to just kind of dick around and see if it goes somewhere. It's <laughs> it's the end. 9-11 didn't happen in your country. 9-11 <laughs> happened somewhere else. So, like, your country's fine. Your country didn't go fucking nuts for 20 fucking years. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Canada, magical world. <laughs> hey, guys. Next week, you'll only be able to listen to Wizard and the Bruiser on Spotify. So, why don't you go ahead and download the app now? We'll be waiting for you over there. Now, back to the show. So you have, yes, uh, we, let's talk about the evil ex-boyfriends a little bit. We, Who's we, your favorite? I think Todd's the most well-rounded. I love Todd. He decided to make Todd a psychic vegan due to his love for Acura and for the hilarious claims the vegans were making at the time. I think everybody was just starting to roll their eyes for the first time at vegans. Mm -hmm. During this time period, O'Valley said, I remember talking to someone who was vegan. At the time, I would hear a lot of outrageous claims from vegans about the good that being a vegan can do for you, for your health and whatnot. I remember Someone once told me vegans don't sweat, so I started my mind going. I've always loved Acura, I, and, I, and I've always loved the psychic-powered genre, and also like Dragon Ball with his yellow hair, and he infused all of that in. I like him, but I think maybe mine is the is the lady. She's so Roxy. funny. Roxy's so funny. Roxy's so great in the movie too. Uh, that actress is fantastic. Yes, she's awesome, and I just love the. The humor there, the whole like him not getting it about <laughs> when they sees them when when they see each other. They at the really restaurant. play it out with they, that. That's the, all uh, volume four, right? I loved. I was so rooting for him when he actually got a dumb dishwasher job. I just mm -hmm. I was so excited for him as a human being. <laughs> like, come on, man, get out of the bed with your gay friend and into an apartment that where you can live your life and be like human and this is not an acceptable way to live and like learn how to wash dishes and learn how to chop vegetables all that good stuff which i had to do i had one of those jobs in college you know for sure so then you have uh yeah and o'malley early on wanted for ramona to have a female evil ex and he had the idea for the twins very early on as well that was a fun fight i feel like 
that one could have uh, improved. I don't know. Yeah. That one felt a little thrown away a little bit. I guess you had the robot stuff. But again, Volume 5 is really Ramona's book, and it's a really much more about her development as a person. So by 5 and 6, O'Malley knew he had to end it, and he admits that he had issues with it, especially because he was going back and forth with Edgar Wright uh, working on the ending for the movie yes uh, it's really volume four is where the comic diverges greatly from the film adaptation largely due to them writing the script after the first three volumes were released he did send them volume four when it completed which led to a bit of a rewrite now Molly said there are a lot of different threats and a lot of different love interests and it is all tangled up and i worked really hard on the script for this one talking about volume four it's like a romantic comedy and it's like a complicated action story at the same time and i just wanted to really perfect the concept of Scott Pilgrim in this book and I wanted to really have fun with it and as a result it is probably my favorite of all and I could see that it's a very meaty volume on his uh, Tumblr he someone asked him uh, what was the most difficult part about developing the story and he says flat out the ending was really really hard to write I purposefully didn't even think about the ending until I got towards about book five mm -hmm. then I kind of planned out five six as one big story Volume 5 is kind of the darkest hour, and Volume 6 is the redemption arc, but there's a lot of stuff to juggle, a lot of plot lines to tie up, and I just had to try and focus on the stuff that mattered most in the time I had. There was also a looming, the looming shadow of the movie. I had seen parts of it, I knew how big the finale was going to be, and I wanted to try and compete with that a little. I think the stuff with the girls and the relationships works pretty well, and the stuff with Gideon and the glow is a little bit weaker. But hey, some people love it, warts and all, and it's not like I'm going to go back and change it. So yeah, that ending was the hardest part. Also making book five more about Ramona had a lot to do with the fact that he realized people kind of didn't like her. <laughs> and this was also when reactions online were first becoming a thing, so you could be guided by the voices of your audience in this new way with the information age. He said, I realized Scott doesn't know anything about Ramona and I knew barely any, I knew barely anything about Ramona. So I just wanted to really learn about her. So volume five becomes as much Ramona's story as Scott's. And then in the end, we can bring them both together and it works before volume five. This is another fan response thing. People didn't like Ramona. People were all anti Ramona. There was a lot of anti Ramona sentiment in the fans, especially after the the end of volume four where there is a quick line where she says she made out with Roxy and I didn't delve into it I just thought it was funny but people did not agree with me they were really upset they were like Ramona's a liar and she's bad <laughs> so I wanted to really just really dig into Ramona I was like I need to make people love Ramona because I love her but maybe I didn't explain her well enough it was time for me to dig in and I do think they flesh her out he rather fleshes her out much more in the fifth book I'm also okay with not loving Loving Ramona in a, a little bit. She is that person in a lot of ways that has a lot of skeletons in her closet that are actively trying to fight her new boyfriend. <laughs> She's got a lot of things going on. And some of that I almost want. I like how a lot of things are a mystery with her because it just reminds me of that girl that you dated in fucking college or whatever <laughs> or in your early 20s that gets all weird on a Saturday night and you're like, why did the vibe just change? We've been hanging the out. Head glow. The Have, head yeah. glow as a visual metaphor for things just got weird yeah. and I can't and why I did the vibe get weird and she's just gets all mysterious and talks about how she's been through stuff but won't tell you any of the stuff she's been through and then a weird song comes on the stereo and it makes it even worse yeah that is so resonant to me and some of it I didn't need 
need clarified. But it was nice but to have love her anyway. Yeah. That's the thing. I, but you're enamored with her. That's part of it. Yeah. The, being being that enamored, like I don't need to know that Scott married Ramona. Even I actually would rather a flash forward and see that they didn't yeah. it didn't work out, and he's with some other person he met in his thirties. He's and, with knives, and they can legally be together now. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Is that weird at all to you? Is that just a um, is that is is that a time capsule thing? Much like their liberal use of the word retarded all throughout the book. A lot of hard <laughs> R's. Um, the some of that just I think exists out yeah. of time a little bit. Also, what are the are are the laws different in Canada? I'm sure the laws are different I think in Canada. They are different in Canada. They're 100 different in Canada. Uh, Clearly, and, they weren't having sex or anything. They were barely yeah. even touching. They and I think they, they made kissed a, once and yeah. they held hands almost. Yes. It's fine. I'm just weirded out. And it's supposed to be this kind of like, eh, kind of scummy thing. But Scott's having fun being a little scummy, but yeah. knowing he's not actually doing anything wrong. It's also, I think, an arrested development thing. It's him afraid to grow up. So oh, he purposely chooses this high school girl. I get that in a lot of ways. I didn't do uh, an underage thing per se, but I definitely hung on to my college girlfriend for a year too long when I moved up to New York City because of the exact same thing, mm -hmm. of, of just being so terrified to be in New York and be in my 20s and have to figure out shit on my own for the first time ever. So I'm like running back to this uh, very immature relationship I had with this college girlfriend. It was all so symbolic, and I think that's clearly what's going on From with the Knives. same interview with the- Also, Knives is really cool. Knives is knives gets cool. <laughs> yeah, knives. I just just half the story is knives' journey to becoming yeah. cool. <laughs> and in the movie, it's I guess we'll have to talk about this eventually. But the line "I'm too cool for you, Scott." Anyway, was a huge pop with the test audiences, and it helped cement the new ending when they had to redo it after the book had come yes, out. Yes, which we'll talk about. Yes, the book comes out, or oh, the film is wrapped up. The thing by I wanted to say was, mm -hmm. uh, the before we'll get into the movie. Yes, uh, yeah, we're The about Japanese to. guys, uh, the authors who who interviewed Brian Lee O'Malley in that one interview, were like, what's the big deal? Knives, she's younger, therefore the best one. <laughs> Why would you not date <laughs> right, the teenager? Yeah. We're Japanese. <laughs> of course you date the teenager. <laughs> So the film is wrapped by the time O'Malley is writing the sixth book. So O'Malley does feel a little bit of pressure to put some of the things in the movie into the book, like the big pyramid and whatnot. Also, they, he felt free to from the film at that point to diverge and do what he wanted with the last book, which is great. And I think a lot of people prefer the final book to the ending of the film in a lot of ways. Also, it was very stressful as he wanted the final book to come out before the movie and therefore was on this very tight deadline and uh, he pulled in an assistant to help with the final push. He'd been doing it completely alone up to this point. Maybe that's why the backgrounds in the last two books are way more detailed and better done than yes. they were throughout the he entire He talks series. about that. He's like, I don't think people notice too much. But yeah, there's a distinct improvement over the final book from the first books. And this is a great quote from O'Malley. I, I alluded to this before, but about how he was the kid that he was writing about when he started. And he was a different older person when he was finishing my perspective on Scott Pilgrim. It is a book about a certain time in your life in your early twenties and the entanglements that come with that. So even as I was working on the book, I was getting older than Scott Pilgrim and looking back on it nostalgically or differently in each book. My viewpoint on being 23 or 24 kept changing as the years went by. So it's like a time capsule at this point. Again, the word retarded, very different. It's like, you have to be okay with that when you're reading the book. And he was, just, yeah, he married Hope Larson, 
who herself was an Oni uh, Comics author. Mm, and, and has since divorced. Yep. Which is sad. I'm sure that wasn't uh, fun. I mean, and that was after he moved to L.A. and had this whole other life, uh, you know, past Scott Pilgrim. This is, again, it's got to be weird, too, for him. And he talks about how he definitely wanted it to end. There was a quote from the guy who made Tintin that he used. <laughs> I didn't write it down, but essentially how Tintin came to haunt him, that he did his soul did not exist for Tintin anymore. Now he's just going through the motions writing this character because he feels like he has to. And O'Malley never wanted that. I would say, O'Malley, I don't know, you're probably already maybe thinking about this, but a Scott Pilgrim in his early to mid-30s or 40s even would be fascinating having go like going through a divorce with Ramona or something like that. Oh, the world would not be right. The world it would, would be implode. so good. It would be so good. Especially if they got Edgar Wright to make a movie out of that. I know. So let's talk about the movie. Uh, first of all, O'Malley expects Scott Pilgrim to sell around a thousand copies. It instead sells millions and leads to this film adaptation. In 2010, O'Malley won his first Eisner Award for Best Humor Publication for Scott Pilgrim First the Universe. Not too shabby, O'Malley, after thinking you were just creating some little indie thing that only a few people would read. And they knew what they had on their hands. The first volume has... Just been completed, Oni Press hits up Hollywood producer Mark Platt about a film adaptation. And it makes sense. We're in an age, this is going to be huge if we can infuse all of these nostalgia pieces into it especially. And Oni Press was founded by Dark Horse's media guy. So as soon as they had a hit, they were ready to get this out there. They want, they wanted this movie made. Brian Lee O'Malley, was, he was an indie cartoonist. He was not being, he was not showered in... A comfortable life yet so he needed the money and all the issues that end up happening by making the movie and the comics at the same time are just not even an issue at this point because everyone from every perspective are like we, we got a hit we let's get fucking paid <laughs> Platt Platt himself started out as an entertainment attorney graduating from the NYU School of Law and went on to produce in the realm of theater before moving on to film with movies like Legally Blonde he gets the script, this pre-publication copy of the first volume of Scott Pilgrim into director Edgar Wright's hands. He was on tour with his first feature film, a little-known comedy <laughs> zombie film called Shaun of the Dead. Perfect marriage of these two different people, O'Malley and Edgar Wright. This is just seems like predestined, essentially. Wright started out making home movies on a Super 8 camera before going to the Bournemouth and Poole College of Art for an ND and audiovisual design. Uh, by the way, I am not going to cover this to him too much. We I know that we're going to yeah. do an Edgar Wright episode or a Shaun of the Dead episode. Or, or maybe the Cornetto the trilo trilogy. Yeah, we'll do the Cornetto trilogy, right? Hot Fuzz and what's the other one uh, that End I loved? World. End of the World. I loved or World's End. World's End. I loved all of those. They're fantastic. So, yeah, maybe we'll just do it on the trilogy, and I think we'll get more in-depth uh, with him But then. this is Edgar Wright at the height of his creative juices, so yes. he goes nuts with this he thing. He goes bananas. His, uh, going back a little bit, his first feature was a spoof western, A Fistful of Fingers, which led to TV comedy gigs for the BBC. He's British. This led to writer-actor team Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines to tap him to direct on their show, in development called Spaced. And the reason why I wanted to get to Space Because it's literally just Scott Pilgrim. It's totally just Scott Pilgrim. And that is why it's just perfect. It's about two 20-something Londoners who move in together 
filled with pop culture references from sci-fi and horror films, comic books, and video games, right? Said, what was nice about this was thinking, oh, this is a chance to go back to space in the sense that you start in a very mundane and relatable place and then it flowers into something magical and fantastical. What I felt very fortunate about is that for my first U.S. film studio film, it's pretty fucking mental. It's like season three of Spaced on Crack. I love that analogy, right? was inspired by the style of the Italian comic book adapted action film Danger Diabolique, which I want to check out now, which apparently was a shit show production-wise. <laughs> I have read into it a little bit, but it's this just visual, nutso, superhero film that is just all over the place and way ahead of its time in that sense. Uh, he said he really liked Diabolique, Danger Diabolique, because it had, quote, a sense of completely unbridled imagination. They don't make any attempt to make it look realistic. But also what I love about his Scott Pilgrim, and I'll, I have quotes on it and stuff we'll get to later, but he tried to avoid green screen and stuff as much as mm-hmm. humanly possible. And people were doing their own stunts a lot. He made them learn all this fight choreography. He made them learn how to play their instruments. Like he actually, in terms of what you're seeing on the screen, as fantastical as it is, it's all actually happening for the most part in real spaces. So I watched the movie while listening to the director's commentary, which I found on a weird illegal stream where they have a bunch of director's commentaries. He was, right was specifically trying to work against the Zack Snyder 300 model, yes, which was coming into prominence. The green screen movies, the Sin City, you know, it's this was a big deal at the time. A comic book movie was artificial and slow mo and very bullet timey, luxurious shots. While Wright wanted real fast Hong Kong style action on real sets, he was specifically going against the grain with the action and the set design of this movie. Uh huh. Uh, he also, in the commentary, uh, assured Brian that it wasn't. There was no shame in sharing a bed with a man when times are tough. Saying that uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg had done it before Spaced was in production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wright said, "I find it amusing that even people who've seen the film." think most of it is green screen because of the style and i'm like you saw that those were real sets right we tried to steer away from that because with a couple of exceptions i don't really care for a lot of green screen films and because the material is so outlandish anyway i wanted the actors to literally have their feet on the ground for the combat quentin tarantino actually gave advice for the shooting of fight scenes he he had a lot of help from quentin tarantino he went and watched an early cut of the film quentin tarantino was the one who convinced him to have a really splashy opening title sequence oh it was actually that opening title sequence was just them playing and even then it wasn't this movie went through a lot of changes it went through mm-hmm. a lot if you can't tell a lot of conscious thought this went was, into almost every frame of this movie this movie was in development for years and years we should also establish that that it yeah and they went back and changed a lot originally of there was not going to be any music in the movie uh, wow. Wright's thinking was that you know the songs are so important to the proceedings of the plot that and i a lot of times it's actually a smart move don't show the creative thing that's supposed to drive the drama because it'll never be as good as what how the characters are reacting. Right. I call this Studio 60 Syndrome because huh. anytime you have artists create stuff and the drama is based on that creation, usually it's underwhelming and then you have to watch the characters go like, oh, that was so good. It just barely works. Right. But he started getting songs back from his soundtrack collaborators like Beck and the songs actually turned out to be pretty fucking He pulled rad. in producer Nigel Godrich, 
to write the film score, as well as pull in real musicians to write music for all the fake bands. Godrich was a producer for Radiohead and Beck. So they got Broken Social Scene, Metric, Dan the Automator, and Beck, who did Beck did all the music for Sex Bob Omb. The members of Broken Social Scene, there were just a couple of members, they did the music for Crash and the Boys. And it was Metric who contributed the song Black Sheep as the end was the inspiration for Clash at Demon Head. And the lead singer, Emily Haynes, was the inspiration for the lead singer's style. And Metric- I will say the in-movie Brie Larson version kind of sounds a lot better than the soundtrack yeah. version, but yeah. we'll not get into that. The uh, Yeah, the, so also Metric did perform at like San Diego Comic-Con after their showing of the movie. They were very much involved. Chris Murphy from the band Sloan served as guitar coach to the actors, and it is cool that they really are playing actual Michael Sarah already knew how to play bass. It was Allison Pill who never picked up a drum kit before. Oh, wow, that's awesome. She's so good in this. So it's, am- it's amazing. We kind of almost did... Uh, Two Allison Pill in a row because she was the freaky teacher in Snowpiercer. Right. That's right. Yeah. So casting. Two, two completely opposite performances. Totally different movies. Both based on comic. Well, one's a comic book. Another Bo- one is. Graphic novels. Both based yeah, on graphic totally. black and white graphic novels. So, so Wright had wanted Sarah early on. In fact, he felt he was perfect while he was watching Michael Sarah on Arrested <laughs> Development. This. But he was too young for the role. Thing was, development took so long for the film that by the time they had actually started casting it, Sarah was the right age. The thing about Sarah that that Edgar Wright says is the reason, which I love, is as he was filming Shaun of the Dead, he was also watching Arrested Development, and he was captivated by the way that uh, Michael Sarah was able to behave like a selfish douchebag but still be incredibly sympathetic. <laughs> yes, yes, which, which is the key. Which, it, of course, is perfect for Scott Pilgrim. Yes. Mary Elizabeth Winstead was so good as Rem- she's like you see her on the screen and mm. you do fall in love in a 20 year old boy way you know like you see that you're like I want to know everything about you why is your hair like that you've got those big eyeballs I want to know everything about you. She was chosen two years before filming began, as Wright felt that, quote, she has a very sunny disposition as a person, so it was interesting to get her to play a version of herself that was broken inside. <laughs> She's great in the film because she causes a lot of chaos, but remains supernaturally grounded. Totally agree. There is a single shot where Ramona is taking off her very big boots, and it kind of lingers on her foot for a second, and Edgar Wright just flat out says... That was my compensation for Quentin Tarantino helping me with the cut Ah, of the movie. And while they were filming it, Mary just said, for Quentin, right? And he said, yes, for (laughs) Quentin. Oh, God. (laughs) So, yeah. Also, this cast is fucking crazy because a lot of these people were at the time completely unknown, such as Anna Kendrick, Aubrey Plaza, and Brie Larson. Chris Evans hadn't even done... Captain America at all. He was unknown. He was just, he was the Human Torch. The fact that yeah, it was Human he was Torch. Fa- known for a failed comic book movie. It was Human Torch and Brandon Ruth, who the man who played Superman. The idea that these two powerful ex-boyfriends, the people that you're scared of comparing yourself to, were actual on-screen leading men yeah. in their own ways. Crazy, right? Said some of it is just luck, I guess. But also, I feel like in every part, I got the best person for the job. A lot of these people have been cast in it for a long time. Anna Kendrick did her first audition for it before she shot the first Twilight. And Aubrey Plaza got the part in Scott Pilgrim before she did Funny People or Parks and Recreation, which is crazy. It shows you just how long this film has taken to get made. Absolutely. 
So the let's talk about this ending. Oh, and the Kieran Culkin. We can't. I, we yeah, cannot ignore Kieran Culkin. So Kieran Culkin was so, many so good people iconic in this fucking movie man. as Wallace Wells that I, you know, people kind of liked Wallace Wells. People liked Wallace Wells in the book, but, but in the color edition, Wallace Wells got his own like cover nice. because Kieran Culkin's performance was so iconic. Yeah. I still think about when he just rocket shoots his keys at Michael Sarah's head with such nonchalance. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, he crushes it. We didn't even mention some other great people, too. There's so many huge names mixed with small names. It's so, so well done. Uh, uh, Jason Schwartzman, especially at the oh, time. I, I, and he was... You know, and and also somebody said I feel like Aubrey Plaza as Julie. Yeah, I feel like somebody mentioned. Oh, it's kind of like the guy from the kid from Rushmore is finally fighting <laughs> the kid from Arrested Development, and I, uh, I was like, oh right, yeah, it is like we're totally doing that right now, which I think is amazing. Uh, Max, I believe from Rushmore, right? And, yeah. Um, yeah, so anyways, let's talk about this ending. Since book six hadn't come out yet, they went with an ending separate from O'Malley's vision, which ended, which included Scott ending up with knives, chows, Jake. That's where they thought it would go. Because in a way, Ramona was a little bit closed off. You know, they didn't really have this set up. They didn't know where it was going. Audiences kind of like knives. It was her heartbreak and her emotional journey that people sympathized with. Sure. Uh, again, I'm going back to the Japanese interview. But guy. it's a funny thing because you are for this relationship between Scott and Ramona. In a lot of ways, I want better for Knives. Mm -hmm. Like, Knives could be with a way better, cooler person, in my opinion, right? Well, that was the kind of happy medium they hit. Yeah. Uh, and it also, during test screenings, the ending kind of fizzled out because... Yeah, why? What was Scott even doing throughout this entire, right. two, you know, almost two-hour movie if he didn't even, if he wasn't even going to end up with Ramona? Yeah, or or no one, if anything else, and that he would have a personal growth journey. But for him to just end up back at point A didn't really work, unless it was going to be another movie or a season. Two. Another thing they had to reshoot was uh, Jason Schwartzman's like evil monologue at the end where he's kind of glitching out where he's, uh -huh. where he gets, you know, from, cause he's always just a little bit like foamy mouth. Like he's always just a little bit snide and a little bit too cool for school and manipulative, but he, there's no pop in the original cut of the movie when he gets defeated because he's not that bad of a guy. So yeah. when he launches into that, I'll control you. I hate Scott Pilgrim. Like that's when, you know, they had to kind of up his evil factor yeah. so that Scott gets the big victory. Right, right. That is a tough line to toe because in a way, a lot of times, success is the best revenge. An evil ex-boyfriend in real life is way scarier when he's completely cool and everybody likes him and he's not like a jerk at all, but it doesn't quite work in a film. Actually, Brian Lee O'Malley stole this from the ending of the movie. Uh, the thing where Gideon goes like, do you have any idea how long it took me to get everybody together? <laughs> Two hours! <laughs> Two hours! <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so they end up changing the ending, reshooting a bunch of stuff, and, of course, making it so that Scott ends up with Ramona. This is heavily... This film is, like, hugely featured at the San Diego Comic-Con International in 2010. It gets very positive reactions from fans, and it ends up being widely released in August of 2010, but it finishes fifth that first weekend. Two things happen. Yeah. Um, What's the deal? Why did this movie do so poorly? Number one, the greater nerds, whatever, zeitgeist hadn't kicked in yet. 
you know, we were we were the Marvel movies weren't as complete as they were at an all-consuming thing. This movie the was internet made for buzz. people who can't afford to see movies in the theater because they don't have jobs. Uh, the Expendables had come out and blew everything out of the water. Right. That was where America was at the time, and we were at the height of the anti-hipster backlash. Where like more so than anything other, the word hipster was just a fucking four-letter word, and the, just the general society did not want to see these people in a sympathetic light. They did not want uh-huh. to be in this world. Although many people were living in this world and had to pretend that they weren't hipsters. It just wasn't quite there. And Edgar Wright still hadn't built up his cachet as being this kind of auteur director. So yeah, it just kind of fizzled out. And But Universal even said like, yeah, we're disappointed, but we know this movie is truly special and future generations are gonna notice this as a hallmark. Sure. In film. And I do think it did pretty well when it got to DVD. Oh, yeah, yeah. And everything. No, it's a classic now. Yeah, I remember people getting really excited about it. My friend Ben really loved it, and we sat down and watched it because he was so excited about it. He had already seen it, like, multiple times. It is that kind of film, for sure. It's that watch home home DVD situation, or in this case, I guess, streaming at this point. Oh, can I do an info dump of all the other stuff from the commentary I learned? Now it is time, Jake Young, for... Uh-oh. Back it up. It's time for an info dump. The studio kept mandating that they explain the fighting in the universe, saying that in the script it wasn't explained properly. Thus, the idea of the ninja rhythm game was introduced, trying to casually show even the average viewer that normal people in this universe had some form of fight choreography prowess by some way or another. Uh, This explained the fantasy of why elegance and spectacle of a fighting game fighting was the normal version of fighting. For uh, Edgar Wright, he felt the fighting was essentially the same thing as a musical. He said in a musical, Gene Kelly starts talking about how he feels about somebody, and then he'll start singing and dancing, doing some amazing musical number, and then at the end of the number, they'll start talking again, and nobody ever says, holy shit, Gene, that was amazing. You know, it just is what it is, and for him, the the fighting was an expression much like in a musical. The Puckman, Pac-Man thing that Michael Sarah keeps going on about is in fact true, (laughs) and it's a real thing that happened during the localization of Pac-Man. However, it was introduced to the film because the Mr. Silly Shoes uh, gag from the comic was very hard to translate onto the screen. (laughs) Uh, Another thing, the League of Evil Exes, Brian Lee O'Malley drops in the commentary, uh, was based on the fact that he found out his girlfriend at the time uh, had dated three guys all named Matthew before Ah. him. And he was enamored with the idea of the League of Matthews plotting Ah. against him somewhere. That's awesome. Uh, The character Lucas Lee is based on Jason Lee, the actor who was a professional skateboarder before he had uh, became a Hollywood darling. In the script, there was another ex who was supposed to be Philip who was just a nice guy and decided not to join. He was supposed to walk in once, say, hey, and then uh, he was supposed to be played by uh, co-screenwriter Michael Bacall. I will say Ramona Flowers does mention having one boyfriend that's not a member of the Evil Ex-Boyfriends League that she said was kind of a a jerk just because he dumped her in a very unceremonious way, but he was actually just on the side of things. In the middle of the commentary, Edgar Wright and Brian Lee O'Malley just forget what they're talking about and just go on off on a tangent about the weird 90s lightning superman 
You remember Weird yes. Energy Superman from the 90s? Yes. And it was uh, only then that I realized that this movie and this entire series was so intimate because these are just friends I've never met. These are people that love the same stuff I did. These were the same directionless weirdos full of video games and comic books. And I just felt like this movie was made for me. <laughs> you, Jake Young? Yes, me, Jake Young. <laughs> um, Brian Lee said that there was once a version of the ending where he thought Scott would, it would be best if Scott ended up with nobody. Ah, I also would have thought that would have been well. Like I said, even a flash forward mm. to him married to some other person. It's not because turns out he ends up with Lisa Miller. Who knows? Yeah, I, it's not about ending up with somebody. It's de- it's not to be all. It's about the journey. But especially in your early twenties, it's about learning all these important lessons, so that when you do meet the right person for you, you can have this healthy relationship because you've gone through these battles. You've you've been with all these damaged people and blah 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 blah. You just like understand the landscape so much better because of all of this drama and shit that goes down in your early twenties. Did you play the game Scott Pilgrim versus the World? The game, the side-scrolling beat 'em up, developed by Ubisoft Montreal and released on P. PS3 and Xbox 360. I remember when Are it came out. Are you talking about the game that has uh, pixel artwork by Australian artist Paul Robertson? <laughs> yes. With first of his many now iconic works in mixed media? Absolutely. Or are you talking about how the soundtrack was done by Anna Monaguchi that then rode that success to being kind of a big deal in 2010 through 2013? <laughs> that game, Jake. Uh, no, it's me neither. Gone forever. <laughs> yeah, I can't really get all of it. Huh? You can't get a hold I of really it. I really meant to pick up that game, and I never did. And it looks like a lot of fun. It's very River City Ransom. Before this was again, this this was before the crest of the wave. This was a indie. Well, not indie. It was actually AAA developed. But this retro yeah. kind of callback. Now you can go on Steam and get Everywhere. a million pixel based things. Uh, but the. The idea of nostalgia for the Streets of Rage, River City Ransom, Final Fight genre, this was the first big one. This was before Castle Crashers. This was before Full Metal Furies. This is a work of art, and it kind of highlights now, it's kind of this cautionary tale of the dangers of digital distribution. Because if I can track down my old roommate's PS3, maybe I can play it again because that's the only way to get a hold of it. All right, Jake, I think we've just about covered it. Do you have anything else to slam down on the table? Canada didn't have 9-11, and that's why they could be happy. (laughs) I do love this property, and I highly suggest everyone check out the comics. They're great. They're pretty easy to get, and they're a lot of fun to read, and I was able to read them in a week Mm -hmm. just on the train or whatever. Really was able to blast through them in in a... in a positive way. I it was a this was a lot of fun to get to take in this media this week. This was a lot of fun, but also a hell of a mind fuck going over yeah, this with the yeah. same nostalgia glasses that we had for Transformers or Ninja Turtles. Right. Oh, a couple things I forgot to mention that was based off of some stuff from the back of the comic books that he would include. One of those things was he usually always worked with a soundtrack for each book, each volume, he would put on the soundtrack and write. So here's a great example. This is such a nostalgia blast example of a Scott Pilgrim playlist. Are you ready? Hit me. Uh, the band Biola performing, If We Can Land a Man on the Moon, Surely I Can Win Your Heart. That is the name of the song. I don't even remember Biola, but I remember every song title was way too long <laughs> at this time. Black Lips is Off the Block. Uh, October 1st Account by Be Your Own Pet. Heart of Glass by Blondie, Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones, Lion's Jaws by Nico Case. I was listening mm. to a ton of Nico Case at this time. Perfect Day by Lou Reed, of course. 
uh, Fight by Art Brute, Without You by oh, Badfinger. God, remember Art Brute? Yes, I do. I the s- thinking, oh, not the, the not thinking man's Arctic Monkeys. The band Spoon with I Summon You, oh, uh, so I'm Not Through spoon. With You Yet by Sloan, and Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. Also, O'Malley talks about his process. One of the things I wanted to mention was he starts off writing it like a film script because he says, oddly enough, he's not as visual as maybe other comic book writers are. So he writes the whole thing out as a film script, which is definitely different. And then he makes these tiny little thumbnail sketches, so tiny that so that he won't get too lost in trying to like get, put too many details in there. He also d- then uh, moves on to pencils, and he puts the dialogue balloons in a lot of times first just to get them in there, and then works from there, and it gets more and more detailed as it goes, but I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of really cool stuff at the ends of these books, especially the color editions. Anywho, I oh. think that covers it. One more thing from Jake. Uh, yes, and almost every frame of the movie, if you pause it, there's some number bullshit happening. <laughs> We okay. We cut. We acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our Scott Pilgrim episode. Also, we are very excited to announce that we are about to move to Spotify. The show is going Spotify exclusive on Valentine's Day, February fourteenth, twenty twenty. New releases and the entire back catalog of this show will be Spotify exclusive. Whoa, 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 whoa! I mean, you know, if you haven't tried Spotify yet, trust us. It's actually free to download and use on any device you do not need a credit card to start listening to our show on i don't believe you jake all of our episodes are already over there you just have to search for the wizard and the bruiser show on spotify and start listening for free okay fine i believe you jake and i know i know a lot of people listen offline guess what you can download all of our episodes for offline listening for free yeah just sign up for a free account and you can start doing that there you go so listen to wizard and the bruiser free on spotify imagine you can listen to all of your favorite podcasts and music (laughs) in one app in one place as the whole world gone mad maybe but let's check it out also do you want extra bonus content? I know I do. Weekly bonus content for just $5 a month. All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Everybody who supports us on there, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your continued support. We hope we do you justice with our bonus content. We greatly, greatly appreciate the support you guys have given us. It really helps us live our lives and continue to put this show it out. It doesn't help. It It, it is, is how we, live, is our how we live our lives. And so just thank you, thank you. And on that note, you can check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Jake! Follow me on Twitter, at Best Jake Young. And until next time, folks, please remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising, sons. I've loved you for 1,000 years, a thousand years. I've loved you for a thousand years, a thousand years. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.